0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Let me invite you into a conversation with Christina Edmondson, educator and author of Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. I loved reading this book, and I think it is exactly the kind of handbook that is needed to help our world and the church move forward in matters of race. In our conversation, Christina and I explore the very practical ideas in Faithful Anti-Racism, and we look at the work of fighting racism through the lens of life in the academic and professional realms specifically. The book is full of concepts that are both very actionable and very profound. And Christina and her co-author, Chad Brennan, lead the readers by the hand through logical and data-based explanations, and then into a space that feels really safe for self-examination and honest reflection. In talking with Christina, I began to get a taste of the way her spiritual wisdom and maturity paved the way for her and Chad to write this very rich and powerful book. I think you'll love reading it, and I think you'll love this conversation, too. So let me tell you a little bit more about her. Christina Edmondson is a higher education instructor, organizational consultant, and co-host of the Truth's Table podcast. She is the co-author of Faithful Anti-Racism and has served in a variety of roles in higher education, including as the Dean for Intercultural Student Development at Calvin University. She is also a certified cultural intelligence facilitator, public speaker, mental health therapist, and a consultant in the areas of ethics, equity, and Christian leadership development. Christina holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University, an MS degree in family therapy from the University of Rochester, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University. Her writing has been seen and referenced in a variety of outlets, including essence.com, yourblackworld.com, and Gospel Today magazine. If you're listening in real time, we have a special offer for you from InterVarsity Press, a code for 30% off of faithful anti-racism when you buy it at ivpress.com by May 31st, 2022. Just use the code WELL22, W-E-L-L-2-2. So let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. I want to talk about your book, Faithful Anti-Racism, and I'm especially eager to talk about it in the context of academic life. But first, I'd like to begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about your story, your own personal history and your academic work and how it led you to this moment of co-authoring Faithful Anti-Racism sure yeah
1: so i typically start uh kind of how i how i grew up and to some some extent i mean i grew up in the city of baltimore my parents were active in their local church um it was a historic uh, predominantly black baptist church um, and the probably the most influential uh, pastoral figure of of my life uh, was um, my late pastor pastor harold carter um, who was discipled and mentored in terms of faith development, but also faith and um, activism, the, the the ways in which those are intertwined by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Hmm. And um, I am you know, a product of an all girls school uh, as well, and had attended uh, two historically black colleges and universities just through my educational career, as well as a large predominantly white research institution. And, um, yeah, yeah. in a lot of ways, uh, was always trying to put from the time that I really became a believer uh, as, as a Christian, trying to put my faith in conversation with what was happening in the world, what's happening in society, um, and particularly as it relates to race and, and race relations and oppression. Um, and bigotry and so in undergrad I studied sociology eventually I started, I started off as a pre-med major I always tell uh, undergraduate students like well i I, I was convinced I was going to be a medical doctor and certainly my parents were too um and and I met the pre-med students and shortly afterwards I was like I'm probably not going to be a pre-med student after right. having with thing um, And, and then I moved into uh, mass media journalism for a short period of time, but at this, but I was becoming more and more intrigued by the sociology courses that I was taking at the same time. And so eventually moved into uh, sociology with an emphasis in race, class and gender, and then went on to grad school uh, for two additional uh, degrees, one in family systems, masters of science, and then the other a PhD in counseling psych. And so I've just always enjoyed people and uh groups of people and cultures and places and the way that they're interconnected and how they uh react to each other and inform and shape each other and so that's kind of like the the my kind of thinking world so to speak and obviously putting that in conversation with my faith I I I don't think that um some kind of way I got the message probably very early in the way that I was discipled Within my uh, local church community, that our, our faith, our conviction should not be truncated, that they were not add ons, but instead they were a lens. Uh, we would have never used the language like Christian worldview in the context <laughs> that I was raised in, but certainly uh, we would have used the language from scripture you know, faith without works is dead, mm-hmm. um, and that the rebirth and being um, uh, born again because of Christ is, produces. Uh, a certain type of awareness and activism and kind of a embodied love that is also necessarily political. Um, And so some kind of way I got that message, even if I wouldn't have articulated it that way. And so I was trying to figure out how to yeah, marry those things, reconcile those things, my academic uh, so-called intellectual interests, as well as my faith convictions. And so um, uh, in my mid 20s or so, I began to spend more time in the predominantly white evangelical uh, worship space. Um, I consider myself, you know, a great granddaughter and daughter of <laughs> the black church tradition, have a deep love and regard for that tradition in, in the American Christian landscape. Um, but due to largely uh, spaces in, that I was um, that I was learning in and that I was working in and growing in, I, I began to have exposure to um, settings that were predominantly white and Christian. And and that and it and it struck me because um, again I was still wearing like my sociological lens mm-hmm. <laughs> about the ways in which we may have we may have opened the same Bible and but have very different focus um, or, or emphases uh, and um, yeah and just different types of different burdens seem to be uh, expressed by amongst different groups and really started to examine kind of why is that I had my sense intuitively. Uh, why that was but began to give more thought and attention and time to really studying it and then for uh, just under a decade, I worked in Christian higher education, so I found myself in the space where. (laughs) Where we do a whole lot of conversation about faith and various disciplines and I worked as Dean for intercultural student development at Calvin University in Grand Rapids and um, it was in that space that it was part of my job to (laughs) to be able to articulate. Around around this topic, um, and uh, and then, in doing that, I became connected to a number of practitioners and researchers, and um, throughout throughout the states primarily, but even outside of the states, who were working on um, Christianity's relationship to complicity with and resources uh, to deal with the the issue of racism and eventually uh was able to attend an event where i got to meet my co-author chad brennan Mm -hmm. and uh uh, i was familiar to some extent of with of his work and he was familiar with my work and uh, we both were uh uh, impacted by michael emerson's work from over 20 years ago divided by faith um and and i was asked if i would consider being a part of kind of the the book writing team (laughs) and i said okay. I was really excited about this new re- large research project that the book references quite a bit. yeah, And uh, and I was certainly um, interested in talking a little bit about the psychology and the history of race and racism in America and putting all those things into conversation. But really Chad and I, our primary goal was to do that to lay the foundation for what are we now going to do about it. <laughs> so um, that that's kind of how that came to be, that long opening statement that I just gave you, Anne. But that that's my story and that's also the opening story of Faithful Anti-Racism.
0: Well, that is a great story and it's a perfect place for us to go next. Let's get into it. Let's talk about your book, Faithful Anti-Racism: Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change, and you co-wrote it with Chad Brennan. This book, it's so rich and powerful and I'm so glad that this book is in the world. It's a really incredible Resource, And I'd like to give our listeners a bit of an orientation to it. So let's start with the title. The term anti-racism has gotten a lot of complicated press recently. And so I would love for you to tell us a little bit about why you chose the word anti-racism as a centerpiece word in your title.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, we had. Yeah, we did have a conversation about this (laughs) because we know I. We tend to be aware of the of what the buzzwords are right and um, so the the, it's the title is obviously it's new for the book but it wasn't a new title for me I have a course that I designed. uh, Where I was primarily working with pastors and church leaders around this idea of uh, faithful anti racism leadership development, Mm -hmm. and so I was already using that language and talking about it in, in that way, thinking about how our faith informs. Um, our pursuit of justice and our resistance to racism Um, and our acknowledgement of the ways in which uh, certain expressions of Christianity, particularly in the States, have been complicit um, and supportive of of racialization, right? (laughs) Um, and so, with that being said, um, it, it was it was it was a term that I just kind of threw out there as we were brainstorming about you know what are the names we want to use, and we knew that anti-racism probably in the last under ten years had become kind of a political buzzword. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so we had to make a decision about whether or not we wanted to kind of claim it, knowing that it would signal to some people like, well, I can't even touch this book, right, right. <laughs> Uh, and and I, but then I figured that anybody who they, they probably weren't going to read it anyway.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and 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 I also you know I, I like to think about more so you know the more broader kind of um, you know etymology of, of words and language and terms and the way that things are labeled and the power of labels is really kind of a a it's kind of a political and power statement. Mm-hmm. You know, who gets to define a term where does it where does it uh you know how can it be snatched out of its place or its discipline of origins and then be kind of repurposed particularly for kind of partisan or for political gains and so in some ways I think I I was a bit annoyed by that and I was like I anti-racism works. I think faithful yeah. anti-racism works. And and in many ways, I'm not giving a nod necessarily to the last five, 10 years of maybe a historian like Iram e. Kendi. I'm actually giving a nod to um, the abolitionists of mm-hmm. the early 1800s who were very much anti-racist yeah. and the fact that they were abolitionists. And, and race in and of itself was on the agenda of the oppression and enslavement of people. And so, at its very, very earliest roots when we think about the concept, even from 1600s and up, we're, we're thinking about the people who, as inspired by their faith, thought about resisting that, that injustice, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, in, in many ways, the, the, the phrase is a nod to the abolitionists of old, and not necessarily, although this does not discredit or um, minimize the important work, of kind of a newer wave of historians or sociologists.
0: Well, and this book is really different. I mean, there are a lot of books about anti-racism around today, and this one feels so unique to me in terms of the content and in the way you've grounded it in scripture and in some other ways too. Is, tell me a little bit about what makes this book different from others that are available these days
1: yeah so i mean so one of the things that chad and i i talk a lot about is that is how much we love
0: other people's contributions
1: Mm -hmm. not just in the last 25 years but i mean like the last 250 years um and and there's just been so many wonderful and powerful and profound things that have been written throughout history and and at present moment if you get the book you'll notice that we we really have a good time like giving these shout outs to to different Uh, Theorists and sociologists and and practitioners and organizers and so um, because I I really do feel like it's it's, it's kind of a group, a club that needs a lot of encouragement and the work is really important. Um, Mm -hmm. And we didn't feel like we were at a loss amplifying other people's work saying like Okay, but if you've read this page and you thought it was good, you really should read. Jamar Tisby's book. or yeah. you need to read Mark Charles Charles's book. <laughs> uh, you need to, you know, or and as a matter of fact, you really need to go and read the entire body of work by Frederick Douglass. <laughs> so, um, and, and so all that to say is that we do think, this, despite our love and appreciation for other people, we have a, we think there are some unique features to this book that you just highlighted. And one of those is that we wanted to be on the nose about the, the benefits of taking a multidisciplinary approach to looking at something as complicated and as ingrained as race and racism. In America, and so I think we tried as best we can. We have our own kind of separate disciplines. I'm a psychologist by training, but uh, I'm not a historian. But we knew that we had to talk about history. <laughs> we had to contextualize race and racism, um, and and so and uh, you know we have Chad's work as a you know statistician and kind of quantitative and also qualitative researcher. And I have a little bit of a qualitative research background as well. And so we wanted to put we were throwing like the entire kitchen sink. <laughs> at this issue and at the same time we were like you know what yeah we're not going to be able to intellectualize our way out of the principality of racism Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: now we you know a part of i think engaging this topic faithfully is learning as much as we can learn and and respecting and appreciating the many the many disciplines uh that that cover and, and actively talk about the topic of race and racial injustice but we were also like, we need to talk about prayer. <laughs> we need to talk about spiritual disciplines, and we need to make a biblical case for um, wh- why this is our duty as Christians um, to resist systemic sin, just like we resist our own besetting sins. We we resist systemic sin, right? Um, and uh, and so so that is why I think you will. I think you'll notice that Anne throughout the book is that we try not to be clunky and like proof texting and like, let's just throw a Bible verse on it. But we really try as best we can, neither one of us are theologians, but we hang out with theologians. I've I've got one that lives in my house. (laughs) Now we we try to do our fair, um, kind of fair justice to uh, really taking scripture seriously. And even more so than that, I think praying through uh, this journey and really asking for the Lord, the, the Holy Spirit to give us deep wisdom. I and mean, the book starts off with the importance for faithful anti-racism, race, anti-racist to have wisdom yeah. and not knowledge, <laughs> wisdom. Right. Um, and that is something that requires deep, deep humility and surrender to obtain.
0: Well, it's one of the things that I thought was so remarkable about the book is the way you engage these dissenting arguments, people who might even object to the concept of anti-racism. And you treat these arguments with respect and you constantly point toward data in a way that's so logical, but also really gracious. And it, it just seems like the work and the writing that you and Chad did really shows the fruit of your own spiritual formation. You you must have given a lot of thought to the way you respond to these arguments.
1: So so Chad and I both have many stories. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I I think there's a benefit to having a book. Um, again, everybody comes from their different their, their uh, different discipline, right? And so yeah. Chad and I both have experience being practitioners. So um so we have heard all kinds of things I don't want to say that we've heard everything but we have heard a lot <laughs> um and I, I and, and because of that I felt like we have a, a bit of a an advantage so to speak in thinking about the uh trajectory of thinking uh, and, and the presuppositions that are at work with some of the objections and questions that are raised over years of of being in spaces working through this topic with people and um, and so I I, so I think we were able to bring that to bear in the book. The other thing I will say is is that s- snarkiness is a, a defense mechanism. Now I get why people are snarky because you know <laughs> the humans can be quite ridiculous <laughs> and offensive and so but but um, snark is uh, one of those things that people use to try to kind of armor up and protect themselves mm-hmm. and snark is not really going to bring about the transformative uh changes that we are after yeah Uh, And that's one of the things I often tell people who are kind of interested and invested in this work right when you find yourself at a place, not just of being kind of cynical but kind of being snarky and and we Chad and I both in our work, we have experienced people who kind of have not just objections but kind of snarky objections. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and for us to stay tender was kind of a spiritual tenderness Mm -hmm. for us to stay hopeful, not in. And from my vantage point, not from the human heart's ability to change on its own, but hopeful that people do change, but I can't change them. <laughs> um, and I think that helps us to probably come across, uh, uh, I hope, uh, in sincerity as um, as reaching out instead of responding with in a way that's harsh or full of snark. I think even if people are dead wrong, and there are people who I think are absolutely wrong, and I think that <laughs> I think that some of their opinions and actions on this topic are not just wrong, uh, they can even be lethal. Yeah. Um, I I still am held accountable. This is a part of the Christian disciplines. I'm still held accountable, with how I even treat my enemies. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a I think that's a distinction that. Uh, that Christian practitioners and scholars, um, that we have a responsibility with even the way that we talk about and talk to, uh, even people who have set themselves up as our ideological, even maybe like literal enemies in some Mm -hmm. way, shape or form.
0: I would love to talk about our audience for a moment. Most of our listeners are women who are working or studying in academia or professional spaces, and the whole book is really very relevant to anyone's life today, but there are a few sections that seem especially important in a university context. So I'd like to start by talking about magical thinking. You (laughs) have a chapter that's entitled Faithful Anti-Racists, Do Not Rely on Magic, and Mm -hmm. it kind of stopped me in my tracks. You share a story in this chapter about a training that was interrupted by an executive director who said that this information wasn't useful to them, to their company, because it was an extremely woke group, and so could they just get on to the deep stuff? And it was, you know, it was illustrating the false idea that if we are woke enough or – if we have enough cross-racial friendships, or if we have the right training program, mm-hmm. that everything will work out and the problem of race and racism will be fixed. And this chapter, perhaps more than any other, it just it felt like that story, the emperor has no clothes, and it just seemed especially applicable in university context. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this yeah sure sure I, you know I th- so one of the things about academics,
1: you know, and I and I roll with academics, I, I, I love I consider them my people I consider. Them, even, even though i'm not like full time in higher ED right now I I, I feel like you know I there, where there's some kindredness there. Um, there is a bit of a reputation right of a kind of intellectual haughtiness and <laughs> and 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 kind of this um, we can pontificate our way through problems <laughs> and racism is very humbling. Yeah. And it reminds me of the, the scripture of, you know, uh, when the disciples are like, you know, we can we can cast out this demon and, and they end up getting like <laughs> laid flat. And they're like, what happened? And then they get the feedback of like, well, this comes out through prayer and fasting. In other words, this comes out with humility. This comes out <laughs> with self-denial and humility. And I think of this issue as one where it's gonna require deep humility and kind of self-denial in the sense of that we can't just always think our way out of it with that with that being said obviously we need our best thinking on this topic um but i think i i think that for that particular crew uh the higher ed crew we can sometimes think you know we've got the right answer and this is all that it is racism is a deeply entrenched um phenomenon it's 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 like asbestos it's like it's 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 in the systems and the structures, um, and so we won't be able to pontificate our way out of it. And also, I think sometimes you know we look for um, higher ed is super busy, like the pace of higher education. Busy and exhausting, and I and I know that uh, women administrators and academicians feel this in in a, in a way that is probably um, even more profound than their male male counterparts. Um, And oftentimes we we're so busy that we're looking for okay what's the box that I need to check like what's the thing that I need to do, Mm -hmm. and there are a whole number of things as it relates to you know like diversity equity and inclusion or anti racism that we feel like we can just do a training and that's going to be it, or we can hire a person who God bless these people (laughs) who bear the burdens that we have not fixed in generations right Right. like that like that's going to be it right or we we put at the bottom of our you know uh, job description postings that you know we we particularly are looking for candidates of color formerly underrepresented coming out but yet we don't evaluate our processes we don't document how far they got into how, how far along they came and we don't do any training for example about cognitive errors the ways in which we think that exclude people who on a conscious level we're saying we want to include in the process but we end up functioning implicitly in ways to, that exclude them out of processes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Chad and I, we spent some time thinking about, you know, how can we offer the chapter that you mentioned, how can we offer something that will serve as a corrective to people and uh, pro- provide, you know, something that will allow people to think that these kind of go-to assumptions are faulty, like, you know, like the younger, more progressive generation, like the, the young people will save us. right? <laughs> Um, and you know, all, all, it's, it's a number of a number of uh, examples that are in there, and um, and it's it's not designed, I think, for people to walk away and say, "Oh, we can't do anything, right? Let's not do anything," but it's to it's to really help us to examine uh, more of the meat and potatoes behind why are we doing what we're doing,
0: yeah.
1: uh, to take a, a deeper dive and you know a deeper look.
0: And then you go on to talk about metrics in a couple of your chapters. You talk about what is an effective metric and what is an ineffective metric for evaluating progress in anti-racism. I thought this was a really helpful idea, too. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah.
1: I mean, for for a really long time. Right. And if you look at um, our our colleague, Dr. Michael Emerson's work, if you look outside of the higher ed space, but he's specifically looking at like church and multicultural churches, Mm -hmm. multiracial churches. um, There was a a kind of a longstanding belief that the metric that we were looking at is really kind of an an integrative metric. So it's you know, how many people of color do we have in a space? Right. Um, uh, And and not thinking about how many people of color that we have in leadership. Right or who has, you know, who who, who kind of has uh, power within the system in terms like budgetary power and decision making power and philosophical uh, authority, but you know the amount of bodies, uh, kind of people who phenotypically represent different groups, is is a very common metric that uh, organizations will use and feel like ah we have made it, um, and then. And even if we have people the numbers are where there's greater uh, racial diversity, um, but not drilling down further about people's level of workplace satisfaction sense of belonging. Um, trajectory for elevation within the organization, influence, and creative autonomy <laughs> in the organization. Those are uh, deeper uh, and more nuanced metrics that help us to better understand inclusion and not just diversity, mm-hmm. so to speak. Um, and and those things those things are harder um, for us to achieve, and it requires deep humility too. Because now we're we are um, we are judging ourselves. Uh, if you're in the dominant group, for example, you have the power the authority in the organization um, based on the sense of inclusion, not that you think is there, but that the people of color are saying is there for them. <laughs> so that requires a yielding that requires you know humility. <laughs> um, and it requires uh, you know. Putting out opportunities for assessment that you know are going to come back not looking great at first, potentially, right? And so sometimes we don't ask questions that you know we don't want. We don't want to get our baseline. You know, we don't, we don't, we don't quite want to know yet. Um, and so th- yeah, those things are incredibly important. The asking of those questions um, and to do that consistently and to be obviously asking the people who have the the historical legacy of disenfranchisement or or exclusion. Um, hearing their thoughts about the environment that we're creating and centering those voices.
0: Well, in the book, you have a list of really wonderful questions to start moving in the direction of effective metrics and using them for self-examination and for the process of examining your institution. Can you talk a little bit about humility and Mm -hmm. its role in using these well? So, um,
1: and, and we highlight some p- things throughout the book. I mean, there's some examples of, um, and it was so funny cause Chad and I, we debated about whether or not we wanted to end on an, an optimistic note or not. <laughs> This is some of our cultural differences. I'm kind of, you know, as so, so so it's it's a it's a white man for those who don't know. Chad's a white man, and I'm a black woman, um, and it's it's pretty common for me to be, particularly if I'm being interviewed in a by a white interviewer or in a, or in a white con- predominantly white context, for someone that usually at some point asks a question about what hope do you see? Like where is, sure. you know? And I'm like, this is a really interesting question, <laughs> it, it, which I never get that question oftentimes from people of color. They're like, this is bad. <laughs> Jesus. Right. Help. You know, uh, and it kind of kind of sit kind of been able to kind of sit with that in some different ways, but I was like, I, but we worked together, and we I think we felt like we got a, a good balance in there, and we give some examples um, of some fictive about what we hope for in the future what things could look like that's towards the end of the book, but we also throughout give some examples uh whether they're in the civil rights movement or whether they're in the last 10 or five years. Uh, the ways in which organizations have responded to issues of injustice in really mm-hmm. intentional ways. And I think about humility and like the, the posture, I think oftentimes we're thinking about a feeling that we might have. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that is, ultimately God discerns the heart. So I can't really get, you know, I'm always like, let's just not wait until we feel right about this. In the meantime, we we do the behaviors, we do justice, we posture ourselves low. Um, And by that I mean we acknowledge kind of our limitations and we bring people in who can see things that we cannot see. Um, And then we hold ourselves accountable right not just internally but by but to external organizations, Uh, it is incredibly difficult for people to hold themselves accountable it's even harder for organizations. Institutions (laughs) institutions <laughs> to hold themselves accountable right we have to have external bodies to do this for accreditation purposes we you know when we're if we're a researcher you i mean you have to have peer-reviewed right systems right because we we need to have something and someone outside of ourselves in order to uh, ensure that um despite our well intentions or our emotional disposition to, to be sure that we are moving forward in an ethical way and in an mm-hmm. honorable way and I would say that's that's one of the things that when I see people do that when I see a acknowledgement of an inability to self assess fully and an invitation to um, for others to look in and to do that. Then I know that we are we have the potential to go in a in a more healthy <laughs> and uh, transformative direction, mm-hmm. right? And when, when when the door is open uh, for an external uh, a person or institution to come in and say, let me let me look up and see where there's dust on things here, um, and again, typically in higher education spaces, and I would say even more so, and for Christians like for, for Christians in higher ed spaces, but specifically for Christian higher ed, Christian higher ed, I think. Uh, can be uniquely insular mm-hmm. um, and while all institutions, all kind of universities may feel like, like they are, we are, we are the only ones. It's very easy for that to be like institutional narcissism. I would say that that Christian institutions have that plus, you know, kind of this kind of religious language on top of it, which makes it even um, more complex and difficult, yeah. <laughs> um, the opposite of humble, right? Um, when you start to feel like you're special, mm-hmm. And uh, and I would say that because of the ways in which Christianity has been complicit in racism, there's an even greater burden. And the research in the book, I think, bears this out. When mm-hmm. we look at what groups hold the most, um, uh, what, what groups have like the kind of the, the weakest uh, understanding of, of racial dynamics. I would say that predominantly white Christian institutions, more so than any others, really need external accountability. Yeah. Um, and that is one of the biggest signs to me that, that they have the capacity to move in a different direction when I see um, doors open for that type of um, evaluation.
0: Hmm. So, Christina, before we wrap up, I would love to talk mm-hmm. about a couple other projects that you have been working on. One is your podcast, Truth's Table, And you also have another new book that just came out, entitled Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. And both the book and the podcast are in collaboration with Akemeni Uwan and Michelle Higgins. So I just recently got your book, and I've been dipping into it, and it is so beautiful. It Even just the cover and the design is gorgeous, and my two teenage daughters, they they walk past the kitchen table and they see it sitting there and they exclaim, and they ooh, you know, can I read <laughs> that next? And I say, yes, of course. Um. And, but the content, I mean, for me, as a white woman, reading your book and listening to Truth's Table, the podcast, it feels like a real privilege and a gift of, being allowed to listen in to a conversation that I'm not usually a part of. And it's a real honor to be able to hear some of these stories and learn. And it seems to me from my vantage point from my reading and from listening that your experience in creating these works is one of great joy. So can you talk a little bit about the joy you have with these projects?
1: Sure, sure. So the so the project with Faithful Anti Racism is a book. You know, I w- that was able to partner with my colleague Chad Brennan, a white man who um, is you know, lar- I-, I would describe Chad as a statistician. I'm not sure how he would actually describe himself. So I need to ask him, Chad. How would you describe yourself? <laughs> I think of him as a statistician of, of of our project together. That's what he has picked up on. Um, and then I was able to also um, later uh, engage this project with my my dear friends and colleagues at Truth's Table. Um, to African-American women and I remember early on and I mentioned that I'm a product of an all-girls school and so I mean I take collaborative projects with women very seriously <laughs> and um and, and again I certainly love working with Chad as well but I, I love the kind of the synergy of working with um my my three dear uh, female friends um and kind of thinking about and praying through what we wanted to share and we've done that in terms of um verbally via via the in audibly through the podcast for a few years now. Um, and we've had people ask us to to write something a bit larger. And we eventually did that in, in the form of this book. And so it wasn't, it for the most part, it was an enlivening project, the opportunity to create together. I mean, we did this in the midst of COVID. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, which made everything harder. Sure. <laughs> like mentally, like my brain is like, it, it's still, you know I'm one of those long-term COVID-like brain fog people, so um, so that was humbling. Um, but but uh, despite the fact that it was going to be a steeper uh, hill to climb uh, cognitively to kind of create these written projects, I've just enjoyed being able to bring them to to bear with really great people, um, and I and I'm hopeful that you know the whole hope of that particular project, Truth Table: Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation, really was to um, you know, reclaim a space for creativity mm-hmm. and joy and laughter and lament all the all the feelings and, and I and as you read it and I hope you get a sense of the of all the feelings are there, yeah. <laughs> as well as music references right. Yeah. Um, so, so it, so I think we we wanted to claim for ourselves a space to be fully human right and to put that on page and really my hope in kind of uh, singling out that word musings I was pretty committed to it was that. Um, I didn't want it to be black women's answers on life, love and liberation uh, or declarations. I wanted to be musings because we're all journeying and thinking together. Um, And so the burden of perfection or solving all the social and political problems, kind of the superwoman trope, in some ways, I wanted to attempt to put it aside and think about the beauty of kind of poetic musing, which is Mm -hmm. what we hope to do. And really also for that to be contagious as well, for other people to then be inspired to sit with their own musings. I think this is particularly important for women academics who um, I don't know the data. I would probably say there's a lot of perfectionism. Sure. (laughs) Right. And but but to also embrace this idea, this space and there's blank pages at the end of this book, right, Uh, for people to do their own musings. And Mm -hmm. I particularly invite uh, women academics to have a space where they don't have to overly defend their ideas and their research and their points. And, you know, seeking validation in these systems that were clearly not made (laughs) for them in the very beginning, but to be invited into a space where they can simply be and they can simply muse. Mm -hmm. uh, Um, And I I hope that would be um, I hope that will be a blessing uh, to women academics as well. Those that book as well as those those blank pages for them.
0: The more I learn about the work of fighting racism, the more conscious I am of our deep need for spiritual disciplines and for community to draw us into humility and repentance. It's heavy work but it's so important, and I'm so grateful for Christina and the book *Faithful Anti-Racism* and this contribution to the resources our culture needs for transformation. So I hope you consider buying a copy. Remember, you can get 30% off at ivypress.com if you buy the book before May 31st, 2022, using the code WELL22WELL22. W-E-L-L-22. And if you listen all the way to the end of the credits, I've included a bonus from our interview where Christina offers some sound wisdom on ways to manage courage along the journey. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at our website. To ensure others will find and enjoy our podcasts as well, please consider rating and reviewing our podcast and sharing it with others. And as we close, listen in on these words from Christina about courage and hope.
1: I think I just had this conversation with someone the other day. I can't remember who it was, but I remember saying to them, and I'll say it here too, uh, that, I, that I think that courage is contagious in the same way that anxiety mm. is is contagious and transferable, <laughs> transferable in a lot of ways, right? I would hope that courage mm. can function in the same way as anxiety does, right? And that, um, and so this this is definitely a communal project. Uh, the work of anti racism mm. is a communal project. <laughs> we cannot go it alone, and we don't necessarily have to be committed to it um, in the same way all the time. Like one of the things that I'm starting to notice, particularly amongst like Gen Z, uh, millennial, who have who found themselves over the last decade or so, particularly particularly in response to. Uh, the deaths, the police uh, shootings, killing deaths of unarmed black men and black women that made national news, kind of stepping forward into like the space of anti-racism. And now being a bit burnt out or kind of wanting to (laughs) do something different, which is a beautiful thing, go for it, pivot, 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 I'd say, Um, is that this is the the kind of work that I think it has seasons. I mean, and it it looks different. I think we are always called to do justice in a comprehensive way. There are so many things that are broken. So we have many opportunities to do justice because there's so many things that are broken. Um, uh, but what it looks like from one season to the next, I think people have to give themselves permission to, uh, mm-hmm. to, be, to be transformed based on what maintains their witness, what maintains their health. Um, and again, I think you have to do this within a community of people who help to spur each other on and also who help to maintain some sense of like ethics ethics and integrity. Uh, one of the things that I often talk about is if, you know, we're going to take Jesus's name, whether it's on an institution or in our church, or uh, if we say this is like a Christian worldview or whatever kind of way right. we're, we're trying to co-opt the Lord's name, <laughs> we also have to take Jesus's way, the, the way of self-sacrifice, the way of humility, the way of rest, the way of peacemaking, the way of winsomeness, but also the way of of sometimes rebuke and boundaries too <laughs> are part of it as well. And so we have to think about, um, I mean, so many people throughout history love the, I think the power and the authority, particularly if, you, if your religion is the dominant uh, religion of that particular culture, of attaching the religion's name to your political or mm-hmm. social agenda or message, right? It feels like it an extra, extra oomph, extra power. Um, but when we do that, if we do that amiss and we don't do that and surrender uh, to the ethics and the empowerment of the spirit, then yeah. it's, you know, we've taken the Lord's name in vain. And and it's a good thing when right. it falls apart because <laughs> we have an opportunity to repent and to repair uh, when that takes place. So again, so, so mm. to summarize, we do this in community, we borrow courage from each other. We're really mindful if we take Jesus's name, we gotta take Jesus's way. And then also we pivot and uh, we have the opportunity uh, as, as image bearers to be creative god is the creator those who bear his image we have creative capacity um amongst many other things in terms of what it means to be to bear the image of god and so we have a variety of ways that we can respond to injustice and we need a variety of ways we need a multifaceted approach um, to responding to all forms of injustice but Mm -hmm. this one specifically around the matter of racism and so um, i invite people to use the creative expression as one of the ways to uh, Mm -hmm. maintain their, their courage as well as their energy,
0: uh, in terms of engagement.